you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1? We're going to be looking at verses 15 and 16 this morning. We're also going to look at verse 17, but I'll read that and you can read along if you've got it. I didn't tell the people who do the PowerPoint in time. Forgive me, April. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17, uh, this is God's word. The Apostle Paul writes this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you that you haven't left us to figure out what you want from us and what you want us to believe, but you've given us your word. We pray this morning that you'll send the Holy Spirit to us, that you will give us understanding. Uh, Father, even more than that, that you will transform us to be a people who live and breathe by the gospel. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you a hard question this morning. And that question is this, what do you hope to say at the end of your life? What do you want to say at the end of your life? Maybe you want to say, well, hey, I had had enough money. My kids turned out pretty good, had a successful career. Uh, I made the world a better place. Maybe that's too big. Maybe I made Greenville a better place. Uh, I was happy. I was important. What do you want to say? at the end of your life. Why is that a hard question for us to answer? I think there's a number of reasons. I think that we're terrified of the idea that ultimately we might be irrelevant, that we might not have mattered all that much. Maybe we are scared of death itself. We live in a culture that idolizes youth and and young people, that we just don't like to think about things that far down the road. I think it also makes us consider whether or not we're going to have regrets. Are there things that we will not have accomplished that we thought we would have accomplished at the end of our lives? It's asking you, are you on a trajectory of triumph or a trajectory of failure or or even regret? Well, today the Apostle Paul gives us his answer to that question. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy towards the end of his ministry, towards the end even of his life, and he's wrapping up his life. And before he gives us his answer to that question, he tells us something about the answer before he even answers the question. He says that that his answer to that question, his summary really of his life, uh, is, is two things. It is trustworthy. And it is deserving of full acceptance. It's trustworthy. It is deserving of full acceptance. To say that it's trustworthy means that what Paul is about to tell you is absolutely true. 
It's absolutely true, not just for him, but is a truth that we need to hear. It is a truth that we need to internalize. More than that, it is deserving of full acceptance. And deserving of full acceptance means that it should be accepted by everyone, but not even just in a surface way. What Paul is going to tell you this morning is something that needs to sink into your heart, that needs to sink into your soul, and if it does that, will ultimately reorient the way you see the world. In other words, this morning you are about to hear something that's absolutely true. It is absolutely true. It's one of the most important things that you can hear. And if you do hear it, it will change your life. What Paul's showing you in these verses is how God wants you to assess the world, to assess yourself, and to assess your role in this story. And that thing is this. Paul's answer to the question is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's an interesting statement, and I think we would all agree that the the first half of it is very important, is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We probably expect the important part to stop where there's a comma, but there's a comma. And so instead of stopping at Christ Jesus came to save sinners, Paul continues on to say, of whom I am the foremost. Why does Paul say that? Why is that sentiment that Paul is the foremost of sinners, why is that something that is trustworthy and deserving of our full acceptance? Is Paul really the worst sinner in the history of the world? Is that what he's saying? Is Paul putting on airs of false humility and this is just kind of pious nonsense? What is Paul saying when he says that he is the foremost of sinners. On the one hand, I think it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul never, ever forgot his past. In fact, you see that in the verses immediately preceding what we just read. In verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So Paul remembers his past life before he was converted. He was a a Pharisee, a man zealous for God's glory, a man who saw in Christianity a threat to the glory of the God that he loved and served. And so he persecuted the church. Paul persecuted the church and killed Christians. Maybe that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about himself as the foremost of sinners. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I think, I think frequently we think that our sin in the past defines us. Or maybe if we don't think that, maybe we feel that. That our sin in the past defines us. That, that our sin before our conversion, and maybe this is what Paul is getting at, that his sin before his conversion was so bad that he is actually the worst sinner in the history of the world, and he's just filled with guilt and shame, and even at the end of his life he hasn't gotten over it. Is that where you are this morning? Do you feel like you've done something in your past life and you are just filled 
with shame and guilt about it, that you are defined by this, and that when Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, that's an emotion you really get. You really understand that because that's your every day. You've done something bad, and you're never going to get over it. Maybe that's what Paul means. Maybe Paul means something else. Maybe Paul uh, knows that he was a sinner before conversion. Paul knows he was a sinner after conversion, but But Paul also did some pretty amazing things for the kingdom of God, did he not? Think about what Paul did. Paul was converted by Jesus. I mean, we were ultimately all converted by Jesus, but very few of us, I'll wager, were kind of knocked off a motorcycle in the desert uh, as Jesus appeared to us and told us to stop persecuting him. Uh, I mean, Paul was converted by Jesus. Paul met Jesus. Not only that, he became the apostle to the Gentiles. God said, I'm going to appoint you to be the guy who talks to everyone in the world who isn't Jewish. That's a lot of people. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And not only that, he preached the gospel. He traveled the known world at that time and planted churches. He also tells us that at different times he bore the marks of Christ. We don't know what that means. But in some way, his body showed people what Jesus was like. He suffered for Jesus. He was lashed and caned and beaten for Christ. He was caught up to the third heaven, which very few of us have ever been. None of us, I would wager. None of us. Paul is one of the most important figures in world history. Is he really that bummed out about what he did before he was converted, considering all the achievements he's had since? How can this guy be the worst of sinners? How can this be the guy who's the foremost sinner in the world? When I was in seminary, I used to joke that I was a semi-professional Christian, and that when I got, became a pastor, I'd become a professional Christian. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible metaphor. It wasn't pride. It was me trying to be funny, and that fails frequently. But, but if pastors are professional Christians, Paul is like in the Hall of Fame. He's like the elite. This is the guy who is awesome at being a Christian. There is no way a guy like this is the worst of sinners. And so maybe what Paul is doing when he calls himself the foremost sinner is he's just kind of putting on airs. He's kind of got some false humility going. He knows that he shouldn't say he's done a lot of cool stuff because Christians don't do that. And so maybe it's just kind of pious nonsense. Maybe he's just saying, you know, I'm the worst sinner. We all know it. You guys know, stop. Stop. I really am. I'm, I'm bad. Maybe he's, he's the kind of person who can't take a... Have you ever met the Christians who can't take compliments because it was always Jesus who did something instead of them? Have you ever met those? Maybe that's what he's doing. I don't think either one of those is actually the case. I don't think Paul's putting on airs of false humility. I don't think Paul is unable to get over his past. I think actually what Paul is doing is something much more profound. You see, God doesn't want you to constantly berate yourself over your past sin. God doesn't want you to live in shame or guilt over the things that you have done in your past. God also doesn't want you to cling to your achievements as if those are somehow evidence that that you've gotten over stuff. Uh, God doesn't want you to put on false piety and false humility that makes you the kind of insufferable person who can't take a compliment. I think the good news in this passage is that Paul probably sinned against Christ more than any one of us did. He killed Christians as his job. But Paul also did far more for the kingdom 
than any of us ever will. And yet in that tension, Paul says he is the foremost of sinners. He is comforted by the thought at the end of his life that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom he is the foremost. There's something profound here. There's something that's, that's kind of terrifying, but that's also kind of amazing, and it is this. The gospel shows us what we truly are. The gospel shows us what we are. It is an incessant spotlight that illuminates every dark and twisted corner of our hearts that shows us every darkness, every evil. It shows us our pain, our shame, our guilt, our joy as well. In the gospel, every part of us is laid bare before God. God knows us truly. You see, one of our biggest problems in life is that we all long to be known. We do. We are born wired wanting to be known, but we are terrified to be exposed. We are terrified that if people break through our walls and our facades, that they will see us truly and they will be horrified. And so we construct these facades. We construct these walls that conceal who we truly are because the pain of being exposed, the pain of being truly known would be too much for ourselves to bear. What does your facade conceal? We all have one. What does yours conceal? Are you concealing shame? Are you concealing fear? Are you concealing pride or anger? It's fun as a pastor to hypothetically apply things to people. Uh, Let me tell you a little about myself. Let me tell you about my facade. Uh, This is uh, a confession, perhaps, just to start with. This is a sermon I'm preaching to myself and hoping that you guys benefit some. Uh, If you don't, I'm going to count it as a win anyway. So, um, my facade conceals the fact that I'm an emotional wreck. I'm an emotional wreck. I'm not out of control emotionally. I'm not uh, depressed. Um, I'm an emotional wreck because probably nine days out of ten, I feel just pretty dead inside. I don't have a whole lot of emotion. I just kind of, kind of live. I love my wife, love my kids, love Jesus, but just don't feel much. And that's hard for me as a pastor because cognitively I know that I have a God and, and, I, and I believe a gospel that tells me that God is transforming every part of me. But the part of me that seems not to really want to change much is my emotional life. The only emotion I feel with any kind of uh, intensity is anger, and I'm not really a, an angry guy. I don't get angry that, that frequently, but anger is an easy emotion to work with. I kind of get anger. It's kind of comfortable. I can kind of put it on like an old pair of jeans and walk around in it for a little while. Uh, when I want to feel emotional, it's usually angry. It's strange. But every now and then, something will kind of crack through my facade. I don't, I don't never know what it's going to be. Something will kind of crack through. It'll, it'll get through, and it'll expose me just a little bit, and, and I'll see something, and it just makes me hurt inside. I don't know why. It makes me, it makes me long for something. Uh, it makes me uh, want something that's almost too beautiful to describe, and it just, it just hurts. I don't know what to do with it. And so I'm, I'm so uncomfortable, and it so doesn't compute to me, since I'm not that emotional, that I just try to shut it down because it hurts too much. 
And so I usually shut it down and distract myself probably with something funny uh, or maybe food. Both of those things are helpful for, for shutting down the feel. Uh, it buys me time to get my facade back up. But this passage tells me something. This passage tells me that the glory of the gospel is that God's not going to leave me behind my facade. God's not going to leave you behind your facade. He's not going to let us numb ourselves with distractions. He's not going to leave us with false pictures of ourselves. But slowly and irrevocably and inevitably, God is going to expose me He's going to tear down my facade and peel back my distractions. You see, Paul's saying is trustworthy and true because in the gospel, we are truly and completely, utterly known. We are completely exposed. Jesus came to save sinners, and he came to save sinners knowing exactly what they were. Nothing you can do, nothing you have done has ever surprised God, has ever, has ever surprised Christ. Jesus is not buying your facade. He's not. God is not buying the false picture that you have of yourself. You see, in knowing you, he saves you to the uttermost. And so the gospel ultimately doesn't allow you to believe a false story about yourself, but instead is the process of learning to see yourself as God sees you. That's what Paul is getting at here. That in the gospel, we are learning to see ourselves as God sees us. And that means we have to come to terms with our own sinful hearts. And when we do that, when we come to terms, when we come face to face with our sinfulness and stop distracting ourselves and stop numbing ourselves and just look at it as it is, when that happens, the gospel becomes beautiful. It's beautiful. The gospel becomes beautiful. And that's what Paul's getting at in these verses. It's not pious nonsense. It's not just him beating himself up over stuff in the past. It's Paul at the end of his life having come to terms with the sinfulness and the darkness of his own heart even after he's been converted and he recognizes that all along it's only been Jesus. It's only been Jesus. Jesus is his hope and Jesus saved him anyway. Jesus knew what he was and saved him anyway. You see, Paul's giving us a picture of what happens when we live our lives in relationship with Christ, when the gospel goes deep into our hearts. And it's important that we understand his picture because I think we all carry around misunderstandings about what life in the gospel looks like. And I think the chief misunderstanding that we have about what growth looks like as Christians or growth in grace looks like is that we think that growth in grace means we start sinning less. Is that how you think about growth in grace? That, that at one point you're just going to start sinning less? That, that your whole life is really just about stopping the bad stuff that you're doing? Think about for a second what that actually means or what that actually communicates. If that is true... 
If it's true that growing in grace means that we just sin less, then what that means is that each day you progress in the gospel, you need God's grace less. If it's about sinning less, then each day you need less and less of God's grace. Is that the picture Paul's painting for us here? I don't think so. Now, here's my caveat. Paul is not telling you to sin more. Okay? Paul's not telling you to be ambivalent about sin. Paul is simply telling you that at the end of your life, the evaluation of yourself is not whether or not you need God's grace less now than you did when you were converted. That's not the point. Paul's telling us something else. It's almost opposite of that. He says that the picture of growing in the gospel means that you are in a deep relationship with Christ and that that relationship transforms you by showing you your own heart. The gospel transforms you by showing you as you truly are. And amazingly, that's not a depressing thought. That doesn't mean that we're just wallowing in our sinfulness, that we're wallowing in this miserable wretchedness that is us. Far from it. Far from it. Instead, it drives us to the cross. It drives us to Christ, and the gospel becomes beautiful. The idea is that we cherish Christ more and more as we go through our lives, as we see our sinfulness more and more. The cross gets bigger as we grow, not smaller. That's why this is a statement that is trustworthy and one that is deserving of full acceptance. You see, Paul writes this at the end of his life, and he sees himself more truly now than he did on the day of his conversion. He is a sinner, in his eyes, the foremost sinner. But Jesus came to save even him. Jesus came even for the chief of sinners, and Paul is amazed at this truth. And that's why verse 16 reads like someone wrote it with amazement. That God is so patient with him. That Paul's sin is so great that he is just a picture of how patient God is with his lost and wayward people. If we believe this, it will revolutionize the way that we think about and deal with our sin. Let me tell you how I apply this to my own facade. And that's this. Progress for me is not about learning to be in better touch with my emotions. It's not about stopping distractions. It's not about stopping to numb myself with, with food or with comedy. This passage tells me that my chief need in recognizing that something about me is broken, my chief need is to recognize what the brokenness signifies that I'm a sinner, and that as a sinner, I need Jesus. I am more deeply a sinner than I even realize, and my deepest hope is Jesus, always Jesus. Only Jesus can tear down the walls in my heart. Only Jesus can crumble the facade. Only Jesus can take out my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Only Jesus can breathe new life into stale lungs. 
A successful Christian life is a Christian life where the gospel has gone deep into your heart. It's not one where you go through life and you're proud that you need less grace now than you did when you started. It's where on your deathbed you sing amazing grace and you mean it. When that happens, when the gospel goes deep, the result in your life is amazing. It's amazing. Look at where it leads the Apostle Paul in verse 17. He says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is so excited by the thought that he has just offered that he can only respond in an outburst of doxology, in an outburst of praise and of joy. And so what he's showing us, I think, in these verses is that the only path to joy The only path to joy is a surprisingly counterintuitive path. If we want joy in our lives, we have to see our own sin. Our sin is the path to joy. You see, Paul's sin doesn't define him, but his major accomplishments also don't define him. And so sitting here at the end of his life, the thing that comforts him most is the thought that he is the chief of sinners. Isn't that strange to be comforted at the end of your life by the thought that you are the chief of sinners? His insufficiency gives him hope. Does your insufficiency give you hope? Does your sinfulness give you hope? For Paul, it does. For Paul, it leads him to joy. In fact, it's what makes joy possible. And the same is true for each and every one of us. When we come to regard ourselves as the foremost of sinners, when we recognize that neither our past sin nor our accomplishments are ultimately what define us, then we realize something absolutely amazing and something absolutely beautiful. And that is that everything that is true and good about you and your life and this world is a gift from the Creator. It is all a gift because you didn't earn it. And so that means that every day that you live on this earth is a gift from God, your creator. Every tender moment that you have with friends, your family is a gift. Every song that you hear that inexplicably reduces you to tears is a gift from your creator. Every laugh, every snuggle, every cool breeze, every moment of beauty, every sunrise, every sunset, every tailgate party, every football play perfectly executed. I'm a Carolina fan. We don't see many of those. Every fish expertly caught, every second of anything you enjoy, all of it is a gift from your Creator and your Redeemer. It is all a gift. It is all a supreme example of the kindness and patience and care for you that your God has in Christ. And if that's true, then joy is the only possible result. There's one more thing I want to say this morning as I conclude. This passage, I think, shows us that how the gospel uh, reveals to us our sinfulness and so drives us more and more deeply to Christ. It shows us that we come to be amazed by the gospel as we mature. We, We are amazed ever more deeply at God's patience and grace to us. But there's another sense here as well. 
You see, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at Mark's gospel. Over the past, well, for a while, we've been looking at Mark's gospel. And there's another sense here in which it is true that we are the chief of sinners subjectively. We come to see ourselves as the chief of sinners. The other sense that we see is that there is a theologically true way also that we are the chief of sinners. Over the past few weeks, we've been watching as Christ is heading towards the cross. And we've talked about how our judge sat under judgment. Talking as well about how our judge was condemned. And next week, we're going to see something even more astounding. That on the cross, where Jesus, our judge and savior, was sent unjustly, he had never done anything wrong, where our judge was sent unjustly, God put all of the sin of the world upon him. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God put all of the sin of the world upon him. And in that moment on the cross, Jesus came the chief of sinners. In that moment, Jesus was the worst sinner in the history of the world. He was the worst sinner, even though he had never sinned and he had never disobeyed God and he had always done what God wanted him to do. On the cross, he became the chief of sinners so that God could destroy him in our place. And so when Paul calls himself the foremost sinner, he's not just saying that we need to come to regard ourselves the same way, but he is saying that. He's also saying that we need to understand that on the cross, Jesus became the worst sinner in the world. And that by faith, we are united to him. And everything that is true of us becomes true of him. And everything true of him becomes true of us. So in a real way, we died on the cross with Christ as the chief of sinners. Friends, Paul is simply driving home the truth for us this morning. And that is this, that Christ is always, in every way, in every place, in every time, in every situation, Christ is our only hope. He is our only hope. And he came to save sinners. And so that means that at the end of your life, when you are looking back over your life and you're asking yourself the question, what am I going to say? What is my assessment of my life? we can all say with Paul and be comforted and rejoice that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom each and every one of us is foremost. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Great God, we thank you that despite our sin, you sent Christ to us. We thank you that you do not leave us where we are, that you do not let us leave our facades up, but you could put cracks in them and crumble them and tear them down. That, Father, in the gospel we are known utterly, and you love us anyway. You see us as we truly are and do not flinch and do not blink. And, Father, we love you for that. Would you give us deeper and deeper awareness of our sin that we might have deeper and deeper appreciation of what Christ did for us on the cross. And Father, let that overflow into joy and into worship. In Christ's name, amen.